Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. You're listening to Culture Call, a transatlantic conversation from the Financial Times. I'm Grisel Damari Brown in London. And I'm Lila Raptopoulos in New York. Coming up on today's episode. When I think of people, what they bring to work, they bring their conscious self and their unconscious self to work. They bring the situation that they're in, but they also bring the history that they have with those situations. Today's guest is the relationship psychotherapist, author, and podcaster, Esther Perel. Yes, Esther is probably the most famous working therapist today, uh, which seems like a contradiction, uh, famous and <laughs> therapist. She's from Belgium. She speaks nine languages. Uh, she wow. lives, I know, she lives and has a therapy practice in New York, but she also consults for Fortune 500 companies. Esther really broke through into mainstream culture through a TED Talk that she gave in 2014 about the secret to desire in long-term relationships. Um, so that TED Talk and one she gave on infidelity have gotten more than 29 million views. Hmm. Uh, she's written two best-selling books on these topics. And a few years ago, she launched a very successful podcast series called Where Should We Begin? Yeah, when I first heard Where Should We Begin, maybe two years ago, it felt really groundbreaking. I don't think I'd quite heard anything like that before. Right, because when else do you get invited in to an unscripted therapy session uh, from a couple that isn't you, <laughs> your partner? <laughs> Now she is coming out with a new podcast on the selves that we bring to the workplace, and it's called How's Work. And so I invited her into the New York studio to talk about it, and we had this long conversation that uh, was pretty mind-blowing for me. And it was really about how things in society have changed to create very specific types of crises that we all seem to be having in this current moment, you know, in work and in love. Uh, and they feel very of our time. And she ends our conversation with an amazing list of questions that um, can be used to improve dinner party conversations or uh, work lunches or basically have anybody get way deeper and have way more interesting discussions way faster. So if you're here to listen for anything, I would listen for that. Cool. Before we get into Esther, Grizz, I would love to hear what you've been up to. Lila, I've just got my hands on a book which I've been meaning to read for a really long time. Um, it's called Flights by the Polish author Olga Tokarczuk. Uh, and it just won the Nobel Prize for Literature a few weeks ago mm. and won the Man Booker International the year before. So there's been a lot of buzz around this book. It's funny, though, because actually this book was published in Polish about 12 years ago. Huh. And she's a household name in Poland, although really not here. How is it? So far... And finding it completely spellbinding. The writing is um, it's kind of weird. It's lots of stories within the main narrative. There are lots of voices. The, the feeling is something that's very fragmentary um, and kind of polyphonic. Mm. There's all these weird observations, very precise observations about life and travel. And there's this kind of central idea, which is what does it mean to be always on the move, to be itinerant as we are now? And as people before were... Mm. Um, 
but like not to be pegged to one place, hence the name Flights. That's interesting. I'd never heard of Flights. So, so far, so good. So far, brilliant. Okay. Um, Yeah. The other thing I've been doing is editing a special edition of Life and Arts in uh, FT Weekend, which is coming out on the 9th of November. It unifies my normal job in journalism with kind of my first foray into organizing events. It's called FT Next Gen. Um, and the idea is uh, is kind of a collection of pieces that are about the next generation, um, how young people all around the world are living today, what matters to them, uh, which forces are shaping their lives. Are we considered next gen? What are we, early 30s? I turned 30. Um, we're probably slightly too old. Uh, I mean, no, obviously, we, we've interviewed people who are our age, but the focus is kind of actually on the generation under us. So Gen Z, people in their early 20s and mm-hmm. even younger. There's a piece about the kind of future of nightlife and clubbing and young people aren't going out as much anymore. They aren't drinking as much anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, Some clubs are shutting down. There's different licensing laws, which is making it really difficult to run venues. And yet there is, of course, still a desire for the kind of transcendence and community that comes from going out. Cool. And then the other arm of of this Next Gen project is a one-day festival in London. It's on the 16th of November. I'm going to be there uh, chairing a couple of different conversations. One's around feminism and one's around new writing. And I'd love to see everyone there. So get your tickets at ftnextgen.com. How about you? What have you been up to? Uh, I have been watching Succession, a little show you may have heard of. (laughs) Yep. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of been everywhere. It's a TV show on HBO. It like exploded in popularity with the release of season two. Mm. Um, Strangely had less buzz through the entirety of season one. Um, But basically, it is about a family that owns one of the world's biggest media conglomerates. It's kind of based loosely on the Murdochs, but it's got a little bit of Trump energy. (laughs) Um, It's got a little bit of Koch brother energy to that family. Um, And it's basically the family is trying to figure out who will succeed the patriarch, who's sort of this father who's declining in health. And anyway, they're all terrible people in their own special way. Um, <laughs> it's kind of Shakespearean in that it's full mm. of backstabbing. There's a prodigal son. It's like very King Lear. It's very King Lear. I mean, it basically is King Lear. It's, <laughs> it's kind of amazing. I was. T- it's also like a very adult show, isn't it? I it mean, is. I spent um, like the months before I started watching Succession binging Stranger Things, and which is basically about, and I would say probably aimed at teenagers. <laughs> this is completely different and like quite a welcome kind of gear shift as much as I loved Stranger Things. You know, it's nice to be in a really subtle adult conniving world again. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's a horrible place um, that's mm. very addicting. And it's also pretty <laughs> funny. Like it's mm. satirical in a really subtle way. And something about watching them all betray each other, there's like a perverse pleasure in that because they're all so terrible. Yeah, and also they're so rich. Like there's something like really, there's a kind of great schadenfreude in watching this like huge thing just topple, basically. There is an article on Vox by Emily Todd Vanderwerf, um, and I'll share it in our show notes. But she said that what's really interesting about Succession is that it seems like it's about wealth, but really it's about trauma. Um, She said the show is particularly interested in how unchecked capitalism is frequently a perversion of some barely understood childhood sorrow that repeats itself across generations. So that's really good. I'll share it in the show notes. Um, As you know, I love a good childhood trauma narrative. (laughs) (laughs) Just something about me. Um, I did interview Esther Perel. You did indeed. On which note... Lila, 
where should we begin? <laughs> Do you like that? I like that. Yeah, that was excellent. Um, this Basically, this interview has been a long time coming. Um, I have always had an interest in therapy. Uh, I am the daughter of a therapist. And a few months ago, I wrote a piece about how companies are failing to support their employees around mental health. And the response, honestly, was really surprising. Like, it was very... It came f- fast. It really seemed to have touched a nerve, right? We had hundreds of people writing in to talk about their own experiences. And um, I just felt that it was telling that there's a massive appetite for this right now. Mental health is suddenly a buzzword in the cultural ethos, which I never remember being the case. Uh, it really feels like there's been a collective shift. I mean, you, me, Lena, our producer are all in therapy and it's not unusual anymore and we talk about it. For sure, like the dam broke. Honestly, I think this cultural shift is very much down to people like Esther Perel. Historically, I don't know, Grizz, what your reference points are, but the only famous therapists I saw in the culture were therapists on TV, like on The Sopranos and on Frasier, who were kind of comedic character devices more than they were serious representations of what therapy is like. Then there's Dr. Phil, Uh, He has been a staple on daytime TV for about 20 years in the U.S. Uh, He used to come on after Oprah, and he shockingly is still on television. Um, And he has guests (laughs) on in front of a live studio audience to help them solve their problems. And it it is sort of therapy, but it it didn't destigmatize anything. It felt a lot of the time like cheap entertainment at the expense of the guest. Yeah, it's funny. We don't quite have these same kind of shows in the U.K., uh, maybe because we don't talk about our feelings as much. (laughs) (laughs) Having lived in both places, I would say there's definitely a difference. (laughs) You guys love to keep it bottled up. We do. Uh, (laughs) There was a Radio 4 series, which I think is still running, called In Therapy um, with Susie Orbach. And it's, it's similar to Esther Perel in that it's couples having sort of couples therapy sessions. Interesting. The crucial difference is that the, their words are then revoiced by actors, so you don't actually hear the real people. And there's a real sense of kind of, to me, distance there when you compare it with Esther Perel. For sure, yeah. Esther's podcasts have really lifted the lid, I think, on what therapy looks like. Mm. I think that she shifted therapy into something your average person can see themselves doing, mm. um, not because they have a severe mental illness, but because they're just stuck. You know, they're unsatisfied in their relationship, or they're always getting in the same fights with their partner, or... That sort of thing. Mm. Um, And she shows that people exist that you can go to who can help free you when you're stuck and and give you a set of tools or basic self-understanding that lets you just like move forward. And I will step off my therapy soapbox. (laughs) (laughs) Stay on it. I like it. (laughs) Um, So the new podcast is called How's Work. That's right. So after the relationship podcast, she decided to shift her focus to show those same dynamics that exist in our romantic relationships also exist at work. Um, that we still bring all of our pathologies with us into the office every day. (laughs) Um, Great. Yeah, and her sessions are with business partners and co-founders. Let's have a listen to a moment from the series. Yeah, so this is a session between two men who flew fighter jets together in Iraq and Afghanistan, and then afterwards co-founded a business that became very successful. At this point, they're ready to part ways professionally, but they're finding it very hard to let go. You don't even know how extreme this is for him. He's, he won the world championships in air racing. He's the guy that became a fighter pilot after getting shot in the face. That doesn't happen. So, so he's, he's achieved these incredible things. So now he's the guy that can't fail. I feel it when he talks. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> 
I get it. And the higher you go and the, and the higher you can fall. The lower you can fall. And a part of your closeness to this guy is because you sit in that cockpit where you are literally on, perched on the edge between life and death. And when you come out of there alive, you have conquered your fear of loss with him. Wow. He said before, before the, we walked in here, that I'm the only person he's ever committed to. So no wonder it was terrifying for me to do my own thing and not have him be a part of it. I mean, it feels like a breakup. It doesn't feel. It is. <laughs> it is. It is a separation. It's not a breakup, but it is a separation. So that's how his work. It is very intense, very fascinating listen. Great. Well, I think we should sit back and let your session with Esther Perel begin. Esther Perel, pleasure to have you on the podcast. I wonder if we can start, for those that don't know you, if you can tell us a little bit about your background and what got you here, like what interested you specifically in relationships, modern relationships. I have been a cross-cultural psychologist for over three decades and particularly, I've been interested in how large cultural changes, societal changes, affect relationships in the family, in the romantic sphere, and at work. And we, but as a whole, I write books about the complexities of modern relationships. And I use certain lenses, certain portals that allow me to really understand what people expect today, of relationships, how they come to relationships, what do they define is happy or thriving relationships. And so even though the podcast is called How Is Work, in effect, it is another podcast that excavates the nuances and the layers of relationships, but in particular, how they take place at work. If Where Should We Begin is the podcast for anybody who's ever loved, I thought that How's Work will be the podcast for anyone who's ever had a job. I also love the name because the question, hey, how's work, right. is not a good question in some ways. And yet there, or there's so much behind it that how's work doesn't always, you know, how's work? Work is good. <laughs> yeah. I thought that's the, one of the most often asked questions. If they, they, if they went <laughs> deeper in the answer, not all the time, but on occasion, if you actually could expound on this, people spend so many hours there. Mm -hmm. People kill themselves because things don't go well at work. I mean, it is such a profound source of meaning and identity for so many of us that it demanded, for me, a podcast that is not just looking at what is changing in the workplace, but how do those changes directly relate to what we as human beings are struggling with at this point? One of the things that can feel best about therapy is that a therapist can effectively lead us um, to have breakthroughs or like a self-understanding that we didn't have or break the story we tell ourselves and help us construct a new one that might be healthier. And I'm wondering, what can we do to understand ourselves better? People come to psychotherapy because they're stuck. Why does a breakthrough feel good? Because there is nothing that gives you more air 
and movement than when you are unstuck. Anybody who has a shoulder that is stuck, when it becomes unstuck, they finally can have movement again. And when they can move, air can come in, blood flow comes in, and then they can expand. And then they're not in a state of contraction and pain and hiding from the world. It is true for the shoulder. It is true for the human being. And it is true for a relationship. That's why relational health, physical health, emotional health, sexual health, these are all part of one holistic set. I want to bring that to, the, to society. I don't just want you to have an individual breakthrough because if you feel better, but you have nothing to do with it, you can't bring it to others, others can't acknowledge it, then you are actually not fundamentally changing. Right. It is the social component of that change that gives it a whole other movement. And why? Because I think that when we get along better, when we work together better, when we live together better, when we make love to each other more often, all of that, we have a better world. Our society is more peaceful, mm. you know. Now, when I wanted to explore work, I wanted to bring something that is very precise to the work situation. And that is a way of thinking about relationships that will help people deal with all the multitude of interpersonal transactions that they come across. And the stories that are included in housework are, are amazing, diverse. You know, I have co-founders that, that were co-pilots in right. the Iraq-Afghanistan war. One is the eldest of five children and one is a single child. Hmm. And if you think that that does not influence the way that they experience relational intelligence, i.e. how they connect to each other, their sense of responsibility toward each other, how they deal with trust, how they deal with conflict, how they deal with communication. It's that that I wanted to explore. You know, one is the eldest of five. He had very clear messages about his sense of responsibility to people, about how others need to rely on him, about how much he needs to think about himself always in context of his relationship with his siblings. And the other one has a completely different relational narrative. You've been really embraced by our culture. And I guess I'm wondering, like, how you think about that, why you think people are open to it now. When I saw how people were reacting to the podcast, I understood this has become a public health campaign on relationships. Right. This is more than just storytelling. There is a hunger to know, am I normal? Is this happening to others? Am I the only one? How do they deal with it? How do they have those conversations that I need to have and I have no idea how to start? Mm. When I was in Italy last summer, I was in a small village. The streets were very narrow. I can tell you that everybody knew what was going on in the neighbor's house. Right. You knew the fights, you knew the reconciliations, and you therefore had a deep sense of community with very little freedom, granted. Mm -hmm. At this point, we are on the flip side of that. We have massive amount of space and freedom and often struggle with anonymity, with isolation, with loneliness. And those have become some of the major things that people are bringing to psychotherapy. And why these conversations? Because we live because of this new freedom and new social reality, we need to have massive amount of conversations that we never needed to have before. Mm. Everything has to be negotiated. Whose career matters more in your family? And who wakes up to feed the baby in your life? And who gets the right to demand for sex 
in your life? And do you even want children? And when do you want them? And how many do you want? And in what ways are you prepared to have them? Did anybody have to figure all of these things out? No. Those and never this questions. is where psychotherapy exists today, at the nexus of how the individual is grappling with their own creation of the meaning of their life, as well as the social changes that are affecting the way that we are going about it. Right. You know, I asked yesterday at an event, I said, how many of you are living in the same place where you grew up? Nobody lifted their hand, wow. young people. How many of your parents continue to live in the same places where they grew up? Half of them. How many of your grandparents lived in the same place where they grew up and worked in that place? Most people. And how many of your grandparents entered the factory and then stayed there for the rest of their life? Okay. That little mapping gave me so much information because the grandparents lived in a world in which you didn't have to talk about retention when it comes to work. Because when you stay there for, the, for your whole life, nobody worries about retention. And they lived in a community that had a structure. And the structure meant that there were tight knots that were difficult to undo, that gave you a strong sense of belonging. You knew who you were. You knew what was expected of you. Obligations, roles, rules, all very clear. Nothing to negotiate. Mm -hmm. And now we have networks. Networks are loose threads that are easy to undo so that you can connect and disconnect. So major constructs of how we've lived our lives have fundamentally shifted and are continuing to shift. Why do you think that is? Your grandparents, people, they lived in a production economy. Their marriage was a production economy for which they needed eight children to work the land. Their sexuality was in order to have children. It was a production economy. They lived so that they would together so that they would share the vicissitudes of everyday life and raise kids and deal with the droughts and the financial downturns. Production economy. Your parents became part of the service economy. And the service economy meant that you no longer have sex for eight children. Now you have sex for connection and pleasure. Mm -hmm. And you want romanticism and you want a sense of belonging and you want your partner to become, to be the bulwark against the vicissitudes of everyday life. And you want to have the balm against the existential aloneness that partnership can provide you. That became service. But your generation is the identity generation. Right. You live in the identity economy. In your marriage, you want to become the best version of yourself. That's an identity project. So it means who am I? Who, who am we I? marry is who a am I? Who, of who are you are. going to help me become? Right. And in work, you are in the identity economy. You want a job that is flexible, that is in tune with the uniqueness of your life. You want a place where you can have mental health and physical health be attended to. Mm. You want a place where you can experience a sense of personal development and purpose and meaning. I'm talking about a certain class now. There's still plenty of people who work for the paycheck. But many other people, no paycheck will keep them if they don't have a sense of purpose. And no purpose will keep them if they are experiencing poisonous relationships in the workplace. And the identity economy at work doesn't say what am I going to do next, but who am I going to be next? How are you going to help me develop multiple careers in the same company? 
The same way that we today are going to have more than one marriage or committed relationship in our adult life, and some of us are going to do it with the same person, some people are going to have more than one career in the same company. But it's about who you're helping me to become. Right. We turn to our relationships at home and we turn to our work situations to help us become. Mm-hmm. And this identity project is because identity in the community, i.e. the grandparents of those people yesterday, they didn't need to figure out who they are. Mm. They knew who they were by virtue of where and with whom they were born. Today, identity is no longer ascribed. It is a process of self-definition in the course of our life that is constantly being revisited and edited. Yeah. To, the old, to older generations, that must feel like such a luxury. I mean, Which one? identity, like our generation of identity, sort of being able to say, does this give me purpose? Does this give I me value? I think that people say different things. Some yeah. people say we never had this choice. It's wonderful that you can choose this. Right. And some people will say we had a lot of certainty and very little freedom. Now you have plenty of freedom and a lot of uncertainty and self-doubt. Right. Because the tyranny of authenticity is the one in which you need to know what do I feel? What do I want? What do I believe in? And then pursue it. And it's arduous. And mm-hmm. so the burdens of the selves have become very heavy. How has all of this affected workplaces? I mean, companies have had to change, I imagine, or adapt. I, so I do executive coaching. Yes. I work with CEOs. I am working with a number of startups as a CRO. Mm-hmm. I call myself the chief relationship officer. <laughs> Very nice. And for HR... The code words of the moment are retention, feedback, engagement, which is connection, commitment, motivation. Um, And all those words are being redefined on the spot. At this point, basically, commitment is a process of identity development. Yeah. Do you understand that? No. It means that (laughs) you will stay in the job. And at some point, you will want to, you want to feel that your job is helping you to grow and to develop further. Yes. That is probably the thing that's going to make you stay more than anything else. More than money. More than money. More than, more than free food. Yes, right. Okay? Is to have a sense that people are deeply invested in you. And they see you and they see your potential and they're helping you develop it. Absolutely. That is a process of identity development. And never have we worked, turned to work in di- to this extent to want that. So what are companies doing? Some companies say, go elsewhere and come back afterwards. Other companies try to do optimization on the spot. And they'll invest in that even though it has a cost, but they'd rather keep you than have to deal with other people. Right. Other companies... Um, are creating a model in which n- nobody is really full-time and everybody is in a kind of a gig model. Right. You know, all talking about belonging and commitment while they're moving from one place to the next. Now, that's a paradox. It's really difficult to create anchors when you are constantly floating. Can you say more about that? Do you mean, like, it's easy to say we have an environment of connection but not actually create an environment in which people could be connected? Yes. Yeah. Yes. For me, one of the fundamental questions around connection in a company is how many of you have lost somebody in the last six months? Or how many of you are undergoing a very stressful situation in your life outside of work? Yeah. And how many of the people that you work with know about it? 
Right. You'd be shocked. Now, you want to talk about community, connection? What did people do when somebody had lost? They made sure that for the next few weeks they have food in their fridge so they can do what they need to do about the loss. Right. You really want to build community? Even remote. Those are the ways you do it. You find out what's really going on in people's life and you offer the support. What's getting lost is all of the rituals that accompany what communities do. And the most important thing for any community or any family is the addition and subtraction of new people. That is the biggest influence for any relationship system. Birth and death. Onboarding, leaving. But at this moment, the onboarding is so dehumanized sometimes, so virtual, that every ritual that implies welcoming somebody new, all those rituals are disappearing. Mm. It gives meaning. Somebody new has arrived. We acknowledge their existence. And that means the system is taking stock that it's going to need to integrate new people. But companies are growing sometimes so fast that they have no time to do any of this. And the price they pay is on the other side. Yeah. People basically feel that they are dispensable. They can move. If you're there or if you're gone, it won't matter. You know, there's that there's that saying, bring your whole self to work. I wonder whether part of why we don't do that is because we want to create some sort of separation in our lives between the thing that we're paid for and the, the rest of our lives. But at the same time, you are bringing who you are to work and your, your psychology is affecting the way that you respond within your work. So what's the best way to think about the relationship that we have with Look, our you colleagues? You bring yourself to work in more ways than you are even aware of. Because what you bring to work is a worldview. Right. And your place in it and what you expect from others. A question that I love to ask is were you raised for autonomy or were you raised for loyalty? Mm. Were you raised with a set of messages like this oldest of five that is in the podcast in which your needs don't exist separately from the needs of others? In, need, in which you are told if you have an issue, who can you call? In which you are told you can always trust people. There's always going to be help for you. That's a very different set of messages and a very different worldview than you raised for autonomy. You have yourself to rely on. Nobody knows you as well as you. Nobody can help you as well as you can help yourself. Right. It's not an either or, but what were the messages around relationships? That influences how you ask for help. Right. That influences if you are the person who can delegate or if you are the one who does everything yourself, but then you resent the fact that you have to do it, but then you know that you, <laughs> want, you need to do it because nobody else could do it as well as you because that's how you've been told. Yeah. You know, you wish somebody would step in, but you certainly don't want to ask for it. That whole dance, you know, the degree to which you can collaborate with other people, the degree to which you take feedback as constructive and, and as trying to help you versus having to respond defensively because it always sounds critical because you have to be perfect. Mm-hmm. So all of this comes to work. And that's the stuff that isn't looked at. But then people say there's somebody in the team who's a real problem. That's a relational system. People tell you, this is how this, this person is. No, 
there, there is no this is how a person is. There is this is how a person is in this particular situation. Why? Ah, because there is a person here who is all the time giving advice and telling you how you should do it better. And every time that person tells you how to do it better, the other person feels less and less qualified. And every time they feel less qualified, they figure, why shall I bother? I'm not going to do it. And every time they do less, the other person gives them more advice. And every time the other one gives them more advice, it makes this one more lazy. <laughs> yeah. We make the other. We co-define each other in relationships in this fantastic dance that we call the more, the more. That, that complementarity, what I do elicits in you what you will do, which is often the opposite of what I actually want. Right. That notion of thinking in this way that we co-construct is fundamental to understanding what happens at work and why some people become this way and other people become that way. Yeah. So when I think of people, what they bring to work, they bring their conscious self and their unconscious self to work. They bring the situation that they're in, but they also bring the history that they have with those situations. There's never just in the room the people that are in the room. Yeah. There is a story behind it that people bring about the particular issue underneath most relationship impasses that appear to be about should we have this meeting and who should be at the meeting and who just got promoted and all of this. There actually are three major dynamics. One is about power and control. Whose priorities matter most? That's what we are really arguing about. But we're using the particular incident. Two is about care and closeness. Do you trust me? Do you have my back? Can I trust you? And three is about respect and recognition. Right. My integrity. These are the three things that most relationship impasses are really about. Could you give me an example to help me visualize yeah. those? Yeah, yeah. You know, why are we having this meeting? I don't think we should have this meeting because uh, because uh, we've already discussed this and, uh, you know, and it looks like we're talking about the meeting and about what we discussed and there is no need to come together. Men, no. It's about why do you make a decision and you didn't include me mm -hmm. in this decision? The implicit is where we really want to go find, you know, what's, what's going on here. Right. And then you can make intervention. Right. You asked me about an example about how do you look at the underlying forces that influence an impasse. Yes. I'm going to give you a very classic one. Yeah. You have a depressed person in the family. That person may feel weak and helpless and hopeless, but interpersonally, that person is activating the entire system. Everybody gets involved in trying to make that person feel better. Everybody is giving them advice. All those resourceful, competent people telling this person who is down what they could do to make themselves feel better, which all that person ends up doing is saying no to, which makes in the end all those competent people feel as helpless and powerless and hopeless as the depressed person themselves. Once you realize that, then what do you do? Once the group? The group. Imagine you have a, a, a manager or a boss and they're constantly irritated, critical and explosive. The easy thing is to think they're mean. Right. You know, and what do other people do? They tiptoe. They try to become even better, 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 better in order to assuage, you know. On the other end, you can begin to say, I'm not responsible for that. Now, it depends at what level you are and what you can say to whom. But at some point, somebody needs to go and find the person who can talk to you. You know, whenever you do need to have a conversation, it's about who can say it. It's not just what you need to say is who will, who will be the messenger, mm. who delivers. 
and says to that person, you're not well, you are stressed out, you are constantly on the edge, and it's working against you. Nobody wants to stay here. And I know that that's not what you want. People really care about you. They don't necessarily feel that you care about them, but they actually do care about you. And they need you to go and take care of yourself. So what are you doing there? You're doing a both end. And in the old way, you would call the priest, you would call the rabbi, you would call the grandmother, you would call the chief of the village. You had people with power and respect and influence that were the deliverers of those kinds of messages. And now? Now you have to go find them. Mm. It's the mentor, it's the bigger boss, it's the wife, it's the husband. If it's a two men, it doesn't matter. It's a, you need to find the person who has the leverage to challenge you and support you at the same time. It's a kick and stroke. Mm. And can, I, yeah. can I go back to something that I, I was thinking before? That I, Please. You said something about the notion of bringing your whole self to work, mm -hmm. which in fact used to be a privilege of artists, artists and artisans. This sentence belongs to one of the very important revolutions that are taking place at work, and that is the rise of emotions. You know, emotions used to be the scourge of the business world. Relational skills used to be soft skills. The bottom line had everything to do with processes and structure and efficiencies. And, you know, today the new bottom line is becoming this relationship intelligence. And the entry of emotions in the workplace has led to situations where we are talking about psychological safety in the same breath that we talk about performance indicators. We talk about belonging, authenticity, trust, transparency, and the big one, vulnerability. Right. When was that the vocabulary of work? Now, parallel, market economics have entered romantic love. And we talk about supply and demand, and we talk about having a good deal, and we talk <laughs> about choosing amongst a thousand people at our fingertips, yes. and we know that many people go on dates that resemble job interviews. So this kind of parallel that is taking place is one of the very important relationship revolutions. The entry of emotions in the workplace and the entry of market economics and what Eva Ilouz calls emotional capitalism in romantic love. It comes because of the identity economics. Right. I bring my whole self to work, my authentic self to work, right. and work is going to help me develop it further. And why do we, ch why do we bring market economics to our relationships? Because we today have the possibility not of choosing between two people in the village and not about <laughs> um, three people at university, but we have a thousand people as part of our romantic consumerism at our fingertips. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a combination of factors that brought us there, but partially the Internet. <laughs> yes, the, um, of course. But the Internet is the amplifier exactly. of consumerism. It's unprecedented in its amount. I mean, how am I going to find my soulmate on an app? My soulmate, which used to be God, now yeah. has become my partner, with whom I want to experience ecstasy, transcendence, meaning, oh, purpose, And all of these things used to belong to the realm of the divine. So there is a conflation between the spiritual and the relational. You talk a lot about how, like, we want our relationships to be all of these things at the same time. We want our partner to be our intellectual equal and our lover and the perfect parent and a number of things. And it seems like we also expect not the same things of our work, but we want it to be so many things. Yes, yes. I think there's a complete parallel between the rise of expectations at work 
and the rise of expectations at home. And in both cases, it's asking one person or one place to become what once an entire village used to provide. Mm -hmm. Two is the shift from production to service and to identity. And three is the crossover between the market entering romanticism and emotions entering the workplace. You asked a question um, on the first episode of your podcast. It was so interesting. You said, what's a part of your identity that was given to you? And what's a part of your identity that was chosen? Yes. I'm wondering what questions we can ask ourselves that can get us to a deeper level of understanding without necessarily having a therapist or without being able to talk to me the way you talk to me. I have a I have a list of a hundred something questions. Like right. This. So I play with them all the time. I mm-hmm. play with them when I go to work in companies, and I play with them when I have a dinner at home. I had one last week where I literally asked people a time when you changed your mind, and there were fifteen stories that were completely different, and it was riveting. Yeah. The best piece of advice you ever got. How many of you used to be the ones who ate lunch alone at school? Hmm. Have you lost someone in the last six months, a year, whatever? Uh, And who knows about it? Mm. I was at a dinner recently and it began with people introducing and I thought this is going to be deadly. (laughs) So I I said, you know what, maybe instead of saying what do you do, people could talk about what have you been thinking about lately? Yeah. What's, What's occupying your mind? And it became riveting. And you meet people in a completely different way. What are you doing with those questions? You know, relationships are stories. Our lives are stories. You say, you know, what are you thinking about? One person started talking about the death of the parent, the other one about the death of their pet, the other one about the fact that they're envisioning a complete change in what they are doing professionally. The other one was talking about me too. The other one was talking about... People basically said, here, pulse check. You want to know what I'm about? This is what I've been thinking about. But by telling you what I'm thinking about, you get a sense of who I am, where I come from, where I locate myself, what what my leanings are, what my worldview is. And you're reading. It's like being in a book. Mm -hmm. And you're curious. And you're drawn to people because we are drawn to stories. You know, what would you say to your 18-year-old self if you had a chat with him today? Have you ever lost a friend? Have you ever rejected a friend yourself? The question itself is, you know, it's not about getting answers. It's about where does it take people? And then you can literally write down the dominant themes that were discussed and you pretty much have a curriculum everybody relates to. I mean, even if you haven't experienced specifically that thing, you can relate to it because there is a universality to the specific Esther Perel, thank you very much. Wow, Lila. Um, (laughs) I'm really interested to know about the dynamic between you and Esther. I think being the interviewer can be a little bit like being the therapist in a way. You're asking questions and trying to get someone to open up and give you answers. Mm -hmm. Um, But you're interviewing a therapist. So that's a that's a funny thing. Can, can you say something about the dynamic? <laughs> Is it ever? Um, yeah. So ahead of the interview, and I rarely uh, ever worry about this, but I was very preoccupied with whether she was going to use her therapist jujitsu <laughs> to see through my questions and begin to psychoanalyze me. 
you know, they say journalists are supposed to be unbiased, but we know that no journalist is really unbiased. And even the questions we choose to ask come from a point of view. So yeah, I was thinking, okay, every question is going to expose who I am to this woman. Um, <laughs> and then the first thing she did when she sat down was pick up my notes, um, put them in front of her, take a photo no. of the notes. <laughs> and then she said, I love to see how people have organized their thoughts. Like the way you ask the question says everything about what you think about the subject and what you think about me related to the subject. Wow. And then she put the my notes back in front of me and was like, okay. <laughs> Wow, that's kind of outrageous. It was crazy. I mean, honestly, in some ways it was sweet. I mean, it came off as, uh, she came off as sweet, but it also felt kind of like a power play. I mean, that's never happened to me before, ever. Yeah, it was sort of this moment where, like, I knew she knew, and she knew I knew she knew. (laughs) (laughs) The level of, like, meta-awareness was out of control. So, yeah, I don't know who was the therapist uh, and who was in session. (laughs) (laughs) But it started from the beginning as, like, very much not a traditional interview. And it's funny because, in a way, she doesn't seem to me like a traditional therapist. I mean, she's almost more like a kind of anthropologist or a philosopher in the way she's thinking in in kind of quite a macro sense about society. Yeah. Uh, she's thinking about how society's changing and how that's affecting us and therefore what are the new conversations that we need to be having. Like she gave an example of whose career matters more. I think she was thinking of a kind of heterosexual relationship where, you know, for centuries it obviously would have been the man doing the career and that's not the case anymore and therefore that's that's a conversation right. that we have to have, but we probably don't have, really. The fact that there are a series of negotiations in our relationships that never used to be there mm. um, that have so much to do with identity and that we never got our identity from uh, our work or our relationships before. We just got our identity from, you know, where we were born, whose children we were born as, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, what jobs were available in our town, and that was kind of it. Well, and God as well. I For mean, she sure. She talks about kind of secularization and the fact that um, that we derive spiritual meaning from our jobs. That That is something that until this point in history just wasn't really the case. Yeah. And I like that she's not really putting a judgment on any of it. She's just saying, I heard her in another interview say, the interviewer was saying, but is that good or bad? And she said, it just is. <laughs> mm, you know, it's yeah. not good or bad. It just is. And I also felt her push back uh, every time I suggested there was a judgment from other generations even to say, oh, well, our grandparents must find that frustrating. And she said, well, some do, but also some look at how freeing it could be. You know, Mm. oh, the Internet must be um, bad for us. Well, it is bad and isolating, but also it connects us. You know, there are always both things at the same time, that idea of yes and, which is a very psychological way of thinking, you know, that can be true and that can be true and they can both be true at once. Yeah, and that's exactly what she's doing in couples therapy. She's kind of saying, you're right and you're right. But it's like holding these two things that seem like opposing viewpoints and saying like, these are not in opposition. Yes. Um, Things that are in conflict can both be true. Mm. Something else that she said, um, which kind of spoke really true to me, was about, you know, relationships are stories, she said. Our lives are stories. Mm. And then she also talked about the way that stories help us organize reality, I think is what she said. Yeah, you know a lot about stories. Well, yeah, I was thinking about this because I was thinking, you know, I spend my days at my job, which I'm doing to give me this kind of spiritual fulfillment, according <laughs> right. to Perel, um, basically organizing people's stories, editing 
articles. And I was thinking about what I do at work and how I kind of experience therapy sessions and the fact that I do think a lot about the sort of hour of a therapy session having a kind of narrative arc to it Mm. um, that it seems like you're kind of trying to get to this point of resolution or breakthrough or some kind of it's not like conclusion you're trying to get to another place by the end of the session in a way that almost a narrative is also trying to reach into this other plane like it has to have got somewhere by the end right and it's the job of the professional in the room or editing the piece to sort of make sure that that happens Yeah, it's like a kind of guided walk through something. For sure. Yeah. So I have a question for you. Um, You knew Esther Perel before uh, you had listened to her podcast. You had seen her TED Talks. Um, What did you think after listening to this interview? Did it change your perception of her? It's an interesting question. So my first impression listening to the interview is I was like, it was a strange thing because someone who I'd heard on a podcast a lot was speaking... So Esther Perel was uh-huh. speaking to you, who I do a podcast with, but you guys were in the same podcast. And I was like, ah, <laughs> I can't deal with this. It's a kind of outer body experience of um, fame or something. It was interesting, though. I, I don't think, I think she was basically what I thought she would be. She was very balanced, but also quite firm. There's a kind of toughness to her. For sure. I think as a therapist, um, you know, unlike some therapists, I think she seems to kind of present what could be kind of regarded as answers or at least suggestions of what to do, Mm -hmm. which in my experience isn't actually that common. You know, we have this image in our head, right, of like the New Yorker cartoon or like Freud (laughs) Mm. sitting behind you while you're lying on a couch and um, taking notes and saying like, so tell me how you feel about that and then saying nothing else. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) You can hear it in the podcast. Like she's extremely active and hands-on. And what about you? Do you feel like you feel differently now about Esther Perel having spoken to her? It was very interesting to just experience a celebrity therapist. Like those two things are usually quite at odds. We're not supposed to know that much about our therapist, right? It's really supposed to be completely about us in the in the room. So to have a therapist really um, promoting their work, um, their selves, uh, their ideas. It's interesting to hold those two images together. That said, um, normally on this podcast, we would ask people a lot more about their lives and about the experiences that made them who they are. And yeah. um, this was really a ping-ponging about ideas, about society, about individuals, about needs, and not too much about her. It'll be interesting to see where the next celebrity therapist comes from and whether that person is in the mold of Esther Perel. She's already shifted culture quite a bit and it'll be interesting to see what happens next, I think. Definitely. Before we go, I'll also say that How Is Work launched on November 5th on Spotify, so the most recent episode is up for you to listen to. I also wrote about what Esther can teach us about work for our work and careers section, so in case you want to take home, uh, we'll have that in our show notes and on Twitter. That's it for this week. We'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Let us know what you think on Twitter. We're at FT Culture Call, or you can email the show at culturecall at ft.com, and those emails go straight to us. If you like what you hear, uh, you can share this with your friends or leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, which is a really helpful way to get people to find out about our show. We'll both be back in two weeks' time with the poet and novelist Ben Lerner. 
We've been Lila Raptopoulos and Griselda Murray-Brown. Culture Call is produced by Lena Prestwood. And our music is composed by Fatum. Fatum.